What up, peeps? March 1st. Now, the letter from March in commodities world is H. So H1. I'm Guy Adami. I'm joined by Dan Nathan. It's 1 p.m. on the East Coast. It's Market Call. Today's episode brought to you by our presenting sponsors, CME Group, where risk meets opportunity. Of course, Open Exchange, Dan, because they manage the virtual meetings that matter. A lot going in the markets right now. A lot of global political stuff. We're going to try to make some sense of it all. And in just a few minutes, Dan Nathan, we're going to be joined by the great Tim McCourt, Global Head of Equity and FX Products at CME Group. So stick around. Don't go anywhere. How are you, Dan? You got a, ton, a little too much coffee today, guy, Dami. Something I don't know. I'm all geeked up on the Mountain Dew. You are geeked up. You just made up a new word too, global political. I think you know we've been referring. Did I say to that? As, I don't know. Geopolitical. Yeah, the, the, the global geo, political. Blah, blah blah blah. You know, you're gonna say we're not here to analyze that sort of stuff. And you know, listen, you've been saying it correctly. You know, the backdrop of what's going on, the backdrop of what's causing all this market volatility that you and I, as you would say, are charged to kind of help demystify for people who are trying to figure out what's going on with their money. I mean, it is not divorced from the fact that there's some serious stuff going on and the loss of life over there in the Ukraine is uh, very disappointing. But here we are here, guy. We have the S&P 500 once again testing that down 10% on the year sort of action here. And I think it's kind of interesting. If you look at these S&P futures here, you see this downtrend. I didn't even need to put in a green uptrend, you know, over the last year and a half or so. You can see how well-defined it is. You mentioned it on numerous occasions, how we didn't even sniff that 200-day moving average for that entire time. And it wasn't until the Fed pivoted, and that's going to be a theme of what's going on for the rest of this market call guy, right? Until the Fed started to pivot in the fall where equities started to get a little weird here. But here we are, man. We're below that 200-day moving average. The volatility that we saw in January in the major index, the S&P 500, didn't really have much to do with geopolitical stuff. It did have to do with what the Fed was going to do to battle inflation. Give me your sense of this chart right here. You see this well-defined downtrend. I just don't see it getting above that 200-day moving average anytime soon, which is also the upper band of that downtrend. Nor do I. And people will say, well, wait a second, Guy. Wait a second, Dan. The Fed pivoted in late November. And the market continued to rally into through December. And that's absolutely true. You can see it on the chart. It's right before your eyes. And I would attribute that. And you've talked about it as well. There's a lot of seasonality going into effect at that point. A lot of money flowing into the markets year end. A lot of window dressing, as we say. So they just happened to coincide that Fed pivot with the end of the year. So that threw a lot of people off because they said, wait a second, the Fed's pivoting. Market's handling it just well. Well, no, it's not. And here we are. You mentioned the 200-day moving average. We spent a year and a half, a significantly higher than it. Now there's this battlefield has been drawn right around the 200-day. We broke it, retested the upside, broke it again, gave it another shot, and here we are failing. I think you drew the exact right channel. That down channel is now the channel we're in. That pivot by the Federal Reserve has now changed the course of the market from lower left to upper right, in my opinion now, from upper left to ro- lower right. Yeah, so it's interesting that, you know, we had that period over the last week where it just was down every day. We had down openings that kept on going lower, closing near the lows. And then there was a couple short squeezes with some headlines about some potential de-escalation with the situation with Russia and Ukraine here. But here we are again. I mean, I can't even put my finger on exactly 
why we opened lower the way we did and crude is screaming higher, which we're going to speak to. It just seems that no one really has their finger on the pulse of what like the likely outcomes. But guy, you mentioned the fact that, you know, the S&P started this year. It actually made a new high in that first week of the year here. But you know what didn't make a new high? And we've been talking about this a lot is the NASDAQ. So when you speak about, you know, how did that market levitate here, given everything that we knew about what the Fed was going to do and what might be on, you know, the radar as it relates to geopolitical. But you mentioned this on numerous occasions. It was that week that Thanksgiving week where we had, you know, tech stocks going berserk. We had crude oil very near highs that reversed as soon as we had the Biden administration tap the SBR here. But the the Nasdaq never made a new high, never confirmed any of the highs in the S&P 500 and obviously shown really poor relative strength on the way down. It's down about 15 or 16 percent right now. It's down more than 20 percent. It's lows last week. This one just has a different feel to it. You see that support level. It bounced off those May lows here. But man, you know, we've had some earnings this week in some tech stocks. There's going to be Salesforce tonight. I think that's going to be a really important one. It's a $200 billion market cap company. Let's see the sort of guidance they give and how the stock reacts here. What's your take on the NASDAQ futures here where that 13,000 number, man, that is a nice round number. And that's where it almost stopped to the penny. Yeah, better hope it doesn't go there again, because next time it's not going to hold, in my opinion. And if you looked at this chart, if you didn't know what it was, you'd say, you know, you have a bit of a double top here. This doesn't look particularly good. Again, we spent a lot of time above the 200-day moving average. I'll point this out about this 200-day. Now it's flattening out. And if this sort of roll over and start heading lower, that lower movement could take place over the course of the next few months. And this could get really sloppy. Now, it hasn't happened yet. And there's a lot of things that can happen that sort of alleviate some of that pressure. Carter Worth, by the way, on Fast Money the other day, made a point of saying he thought Apple was the next shoe to fall. That traded down to 152. We'll look at an Apple chart. Bounced. A lot of people think that one's vulnerable to the downside. I'll say this. This chart does not look particularly healthy to me. And the longer we stay here below the 200-day, the more the 200-day slopes lower, the lower we go in the NQ. Yeah. So speaking of slopes, here's one, and it's not really a slope of hope. Look at the VIX, the the, the S&P volatility index. And, you know, this obviously tracks the volatility of the S&P 500 here. You know, this one seems to be kind of trending higher. You have that 200-day moving average that looks like it wants to slope a little higher. And I will say this guy, look at those last two highs or last three highs, one in December, one in January, and one in February. And you can see that you have these kind of gaps higher and then reversals. What does that mean? It means that the stock market opened lower and then reversed. And we've had some violent reversals when the market has made those lows. What is this VIX chart telling you and maybe about positioning and the like? And I listen, you know, when you have the S&P down 10%, the NASDAQ down 15%, I mean, people are going to start reaching for protection. But this is kind of an interesting chart because this is a two-year chart. After you take out that huge move in the beginning of 2020, you see 40 or the mid to high 30s as just levels where you want to be selling ball and buying stocks. When the Federal Reserve's involved, when they're being accommodative, that tamps down volatility. Whether they intend to do it or not, that's just the reality of the situation. And this chart speaks to exactly that. So I don't think, once again, it's coincidence that this 200-day, as you mentioned, starting to slope higher, and this seemingly making higher lows and higher highs speaks yeah. to exactly that, a Fed that's pivoted. And I don't think you should, listen, I'm not suggesting we're doing it. You got to pay attention here because typically over the last year, year and a half, these volatility events lasted a day, maybe two. Seemingly now they're lasting a little bit longer. It just begs the question, when's the next time we're going to see one of these blow off moves in the volatility index? I think we're pretty close. By the way, not to bury the lead here, I think the bond market today is telling you exactly that, Dan. 
Well, there's two things. I mean, when you think about when risk markets get dislocated and the VIX starts making higher highs over a longer period of time, usually you see some things that are not related to equities that are making equity investors pretty concerned, causing them to reach for protection. And one of them, and you said yesterday on the market call, Guy, you think that crude is going to get through 100, that's WTI, and it may march right towards 120 or so. Well, we wake up this morning here and we have WTI up a whole heck of a lot, man. This has to be like one of the biggest one day moves that we've seen in a long time, up 9%, very near 105. We just wanted to chart this out looking at, you know, going back, you know, through the financial crisis here in the post GFC period where QE was abundant. But then what happened in 2014, we had that taper tantrum. We're going to talk about rates in a second. Rates started going higher. The dollar started going higher. Crude oil started going lower here. Is it going to be different this time? Because you see that resistance that I put up there between, I don't know, 110 and 117 or so. We're almost there, guy. If by different this time you mean it's not going to or it's going to 120 and failing, then I guess it's different this time because I think we're going to get to that 120 level. I've said it for a while. This chart with that minus $37 level that we saw, that huge spike to the downside, sort of masks a lot of what's going on here. It's a much better looking chart if you're able to back that out. But again, I've said for a while, it's not necessarily just about Russia, Ukraine. The supply demand situation, the fundamentals behind crude oil are such that it should be higher. It's just math at a certain point. And I think that's what you're seeing now. By the way, during COVID, a lot of these companies sort of shuttered, didn't go through the CapEx thing that they typically do. And you just can't ramp that up overnight. So this supply demand fundamentals going on in crude takes a long time to exhaust itself. And I don't think we're there yet, Dan. Yeah, well, that chart is obviously that negative print, you know, back in April of 2020. Let's say you take that out. You had a beautiful double bottom in around the 30s here. And to your point, this is a long-term log chart. And, you know, if it gets through that, there's no resistance until you get to that high back in late 2007, early 2008. But here's the one, just as the the crude chart is kind of causing investors to kind of be on high alert, I think this 10-year U.S. Treasury yield chart is really important. You and I have been talking about it. You were calling for 2% in the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield. You were also calling for the 210 spread to be about 30 basis points. We nearly got there. We're about 40 basis points right now. But man, that move from 205, I feel like that was last week. Okay, the first time is above 2% since the start of the pandemic and now a breakdown below that kind of little flag that it was making in January guy you see that 200 day moving that average down there at 153 it wasn't there too long ago it was there in December and it also lines up from with that uptrend that's been in place since what might be a generational low we may never see the 10-year yield below 50 basis points what's your take on yield here because you called it you said I think we're going to see a flight to quality in U.S. Treasuries. And that's what we're seeing now. You know, I thought this move to 2% would happen. It did. And then I thought you'd see a subsequent sell-off in the broader markets, which would lead to a flight to quality in the form of the bond market. Buying TLT, which, by the way, you had a great trade on last week, meaning yields going lower. And here we are. It's playing out right before our very eyes. So this is a real problem. And again, not to rail on central banks, but this is a real problem for our Federal Reserve, because as you mentioned that yield curve continues to narrow. And I thought we'd get to 30 basis points again in the form of 1.5% in the two-year, 1.8% in the 10. And I got to tell you something, getting pretty close. So that 1.5%, that uptrend line that you drew, that's in the crosshairs because if this market sell-off continues to accelerate, yeah. the buying in bonds will continue to move 
yields lower. And it's, again, playing out right before our eyes, Dan. Yeah, let's zoom out a little bit here because this is a theme that you and I have been talking about on Market Call, I think, for a, a couple of months. And I know that Danny Moses, our partner in crime on our podcast on the tape that drops every Friday, people should check that out. He's been talking about this notion of stagflation, right? And he's been talking about it since the summer. I mean, before anyone was talking about it. And really, the, the idea was that if the Fed is going to get serious about inflation, they're going to probably start to get a bit tighter. You know, at the time, I think people were thinking that Maybe there would be three to four quarter point rate hikes, right? And those expectations got as high as seven, eight, nine over the next two years. That's over the last month or so. So now, you know, what is the 10-year coming in right now telling you? It could be a reflection on expectations for growth, inflation with higher rates, and then all these geopolitical strains on supply chains and commodity prices. We might find ourselves in much, much lower growth than a lot of people expected at the end of the pandemic when they really expected global, you know, reflation trade going on. So guy, is this like, you know, you, if you have your inverted yield curve, if that were to happen, you know, you and I talked a bit about this yesterday, is that signaling the potential for a recession and therefore, and then and, and throw in their equity prices going lower than where they are now, you have that negative wealth effect. It seems like, as you would call a witch's brew for the stock market. Yeah. And that's a word I historically never use on fast money because I'm not an economist, but I'll tell you this, I'll just push back and say, and this is something for the viewers and the listeners to think about what causes a recession? Does a recession cause a market sell-off or does a market sell-off cause a recession? I would submit a market sell-off is what really is going to cause this next recession, which again, I don't know if we're on the verge of, and quite frankly, I don't know if it's all that interesting because I'm not an economist. But what I will say is an inverted yield curve is not particularly good. But if you want to look at one thing that could really tell the tale, Dan, and we've talked about this now for a while, it comes in the form of this HYG, high yield bonds. And these things don't move. Specifically, this instrument doesn't move. But when it does move, it moves dramatically typically to the downside and events. And that typically is the precursor of a market move. And quite frankly, Dan, we seem to be on the precipice of that as well now. Yeah, well, if you think about what happened during the pandemic and the Fed, you know, you and I could debate it a little bit. I think we're probably both in agreement. Their move to lower Fed funds rate almost immediately in February when it appeared that we were going to have some real issues with this pandemic. What they really wanted to do is make sure that we didn't see credit markets seize up and have some of the situations that we had in the financial crisis, you know, a decade earlier or so. So that was one of the main reasons there. But, you know, you got to keep an eye on high yield bonds. You see that start to blow out. Then you start getting worse worried about defaults. And that's one of the things I think with these increased sanctions that are really on top of mind for a lot of equity investors, which is why we have to look at JP Morgan here. You and I highlighted it yesterday on the market call here. It's obviously the largest bank in the world, the largest market cap. And we were just kind of suggesting that a break below that level there around 140, which was the prior high right before the pandemic, the breakout level in late 2020, where it seems like we were kind of out of the woods here. It was the low in December. And here we are, man, we're through it. And we said air pocket between 140 down to 120. You, you see that uptrend from the 2020 lows here. We're well below that 200 day moving average that got rejected on that bounce in January here. What is your take on JP Morgan? Because I got to tell you, it's kind of a bunch of nonsense, man. On Twitter, I heard it all weekend. Are we going to have a Lehman moment if Russia's cut off from Swift, that sort of thing? Well, it seems like at least from a stock market point of you we're having a jp morgan moment at the moment because finally valuation caught up to jp morgan valuation in the form of price to tangible book which was trading close to two and a half times at its peak and that was levels we last saw 
pre-financial crisis, which didn't really make a lot of sense to me. So in an environment now where people are saying, wait a second, valuations matter, and they were going down the list, they finally got into the banks. And they look at the banks and they say, we love JP Morgan. Great bank, I get it. But the valuation it was trading at doesn't make any sense. And I think what you're seeing here is the market figuring that out, Dan, in my opinion. Yeah, well, we bring up JP Morgan on a macro show because obviously it's going to trade off a lot of things going on with these risk markets here. And obviously it's very connected to the potential for economic sanctions, having reverberations in financial institutions here. And the other one, obviously it trades with rates too. The banks seem to like the idea that rates were going higher, steepening yield curve at the time a few months ago for net interest margins. At this point, maybe not so much. And here's another equity we got to talk about. And this might be a hot take guy. I want to hear what you have to say about this. I know you and I were talking on the phone yesterday about it but look at this apple we've highlighted it you just mentioned that carter thinks we have some you know more room to the downside this one is one funky chart man look at where it stopped right at its 200 day moving average last week when things really felt like they were going to get ugly you see that uptrend from mid 2020 or 2020 there it never even got there it's only down about 10 percent on the year we just said the s p 500 is down about 10 percent Here's my take. Is the Fed, which can't be buying bonds right now because they're tapering, okay, are they buying the largest equity in the world? Now, you may say that's the dumbest thing you've ever heard, but we all know the kind of the idea of this plunge protection team. If you buy the biggest equities, then the means that the S&P 500 really can't get sloppy in a way if you're elevated. I'm just curious your take on that because maybe that's what they're doing as they committed to tapering their bond purchase. Well, they should hire me because, it, as you mentioned, Apple traded right down to the 200-day last week, 150. The 200-day was 151.60. Carter's talked about this. Obviously, each passing day, that 200-day moving average increases, given, again, the price of the stock. But I think you're right. And again, in an environment where people are focused on valuations, valuations matter. And Apple trading at what, Dan, you know better than I do, 27 times next year's numbers with growth that doesn't substantiate that, doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense. And what I find interesting, what I've said before when Apple was a growth stock, it was trading with a 13 multiple. Now that's a value stock, it's trading with a growth multiple of about 27. Makes no sense. Now, people will say out there, oh, but Apple's been so good to me. Apple, first of all, I'll just tell you flat out, Apple does not care about you, nor should you care about Apple necessarily. You got to look at this. And we've seen at least four or five, 30 to 45% peak to trough declines over the years. And maybe we're on the precipice of one now. That green line, that trend line comes in right around 148 and a half, 149. All right, but what about my hot take, man? I mean, this is one of the reasons why I think we're talking about this on a show dedicated to macro here. Could the Fed be buying this and Google and Microsoft and keeping them, you know, kind of in some sort of, you know, if they're going to be a source of funds, just the way that the U.S. Treasuries are right now that people are reaching to, it makes some sense to keep it together. Curious guy. If that's where we are, listen, I don't put it past them. If that's where we are right now, we have bigger problems. We have much bigger fish to fry because if they're trying to bolster this broader market with four or five different names. As I've mentioned a number of times, I don't know who Katie is, but she better bar the door, Dan. All right, fair enough. All right, we've been talking about investors reaching for stuff, and you've been calling for higher gold. You had that breakout of that pennant formation. What's your take on gold right here? Are we going to see those prior all-time highs from 2020? And what do you think the potential is just to blow through that, man? I think we will, and I think this is going to play out similarly to how crude is playing out. You know, sort of this hesitation before the final breakout to the upside. 
you know, I will tell you, although gold gets lumped in with the commodities, there's really no commodity use. There's no real end use for gold outside of jewelry. So it doesn't really have that commodity moniker. But what I'll tell you is in times of strife, people have found themselves in gold and central banks have been buying gold in record amounts over the last couple of years. I don't know what they were getting ahead of. I think I do. It doesn't really matter. It hasn't manifested itself in the price. And that's fallen on deaf ears because I can say, oh, I want it. Bank of Germany, you know, the Bundesbank is buying gold. The Russians are buying gold. The Chinese are buying gold. But if the price doesn't move, nobody cares. Now you're starting to see the price move in tandem with that purchasing. I think it continues to go higher. And I think we're headed back to the summer of 2020 levels. Fair enough. All right. Well, listen, we just talked about a lot of products that trade on CME. That's a Chicago Mercantile Exchange. We want to bring in a very special guest, Tim McCourt, and, and Guy read his bio. But man, he is head of global equity products and some other products over at CME. Tim, welcome to Market Call. Thanks, guys. Glad to be here. Exciting show so far and, and looking forward to the conversation. Well, listen, you know, one of the things that we've been spending a lot of time on Market Call over the last few months, and especially since you guys listed those ETH mini futures here, we've been talking about a lot of crypto. And, and it seems like everybody's talking about a lot of crypto. And I know that, you know, you're very focused on equity linked products, but you're also focused on on these crypto products that trade on CME. And we're really curious to get your sense of like, okay, one of the big themes of today's call, Market Call, was investors reaching for stuff, investors looking for for some protection here. And you know, one of the things that we've highlighted also before is that the futures markets, as liquid as they are, they allow investors to put stops in, to really think about levels. That's one of the reasons why we lean on charts a lot. Give us a sense of just what you're seeing as it relates to the equity market volatility over the last couple of months and the interest in some of these Bitcoin and ETH futures here. Absolutely. I think what's interesting, just reinforcing some of the comments you guys are just making, one of the themes we've been talking about with customers and market participants in 2021 and certainly carrying into 2022 here is index choice matters. In this type of market where you're having divergence between the S&P and the NASDAQ and the Russell 2000 because of the stocks and the weightings of those stocks that make up those indices, you're going to see slightly different price performance as they react to different economic news like earnings or some of the macro or geopolitical events that are occurring in the marketplace. That's certainly a theme that we're seeing. As one of the great things at CME is that you can trade all of the major benchmarks in one location. And that doesn't necessarily just apply to equities. But we've also noticed when we looked at equities and the crypto markets as of late, earlier in the year, you know, we go back to maybe the first, second week of January, some folks were talking about how that correlation or the strength, the relatedness between equities and crypto seemed to be strengthening especially in our risk-off environment. But what we're seeing the last few trading sessions, particularly today, is that's not holding true. We have crypto markets rallying today. The Bitcoin and Ether futures are up at CME a few percentage points, while equity is still continuing to trade down, which largely makes us believe that crypto in particular is still much more driven by supply and demand of the user base, of those wanting to access it or manage risks with respect to their DeFi projects, or if they're using Bitcoin as a store of value, you're starting to see that market mature a little bit. But I think what's interesting is when we look at some of the price action and some of the charting, you're starting to see some formation of technicals in the market, which is great for futures. It's exciting to see that when we have this type of analysis for the futures markets. And what I'm excited about is when you think about the BTC contracts we have, but we also have Ether, Micro Ether, Micro Bitcoin, there's lots of choice in terms of what is the right size for investors or what type of trader you are in the market. Lots of ways to get involved. Certainly exciting, but I think the last few days has taught us it's still early days 
in the relationship of Bitcoin and crypto versus the other asset classes. And if I could predict what would happen with Bitcoin or Ether, you know, I'd have a very different job. But right now, it's just focusing on introducing products to help others manage their risk around Bitcoin. No, Tim, that's great. And the great thing about CME is you have so many different products. You know, some products obviously take center stage in times like this. Others sort of take a back seat. What have you noticed over the last, you know, few months in particular where people are sort of gravitating towards in terms of your products? Yeah, I think certainly where we've seen is continued uptake in our micro e-mini equity index contracts. You know, those in terms of the volume of 2020 versus 2021, up over 50, 60% versus what we were seeing last year, which was already a high volume year. So I think micros are important and not just for the retail trader. Institutions are using them because everybody in these type of markets wants to be more precise with how they're managing risk, whether they're equitizing the flows in their funds or they're hedging their option portfolio or just being nimble about how they're managing their risk without you know, invoking tax consequences in their accounts and whatnot. So it's really been an important tool. And we've seen that spill over to other asset classes that see me, not only crypto, but think about FX, micro crude, micro treasury contracts, you know, micromania is alive and well, where even just this morning, we announced that on March 28th, we're going to introduce options on the micro Bitcoin and micro ether future. So it's really something that the more tools you have in your toolbox of various size, the more powerful your risk management capabilities or your ability to access the market. Well, let's talk about some of those volumes that you're seeing here. I think we have a chart of the CME Group's E-mini futures average daily volume by quarter. And if you look at that Q1 of 2022, it's just a blowout. Does that coincide with just the, the equity market volatility that we're talking about and the interest in these products? What would you say is going on right here? Absolutely. I think when we look at the environment or the backdrop we've seen, there's certainly not only been increased volatility when you're measuring it on a close-to-close basis, but think about some of the intraday moves that we've also seen, where I think when we look at the NASDAQ and the Dow, we've seen some of the largest V-shaped moves just a few weeks ago in over a decade. I think in the NASDAQ, when it's just the Dow, the biggest V-shaped you know, trade-off and recovery since the start of the work-from-home environment you know, almost two years ago. So you're seeing the intraday volatility increase And when that risk is manifesting, people really need to be more active in terms of managing their risk, deploying their strategies, or taking advantage of some of these moves from a more day trading perspective. So I think all of these confluence of events are really are what driving the volume in our micro e-mini contracts. And I think what's notable, going back to some of your comments around Apple, is unlike the classic e-minis or the older siblings, the micro NASDAQ e-mini is out trading the S&P micro. And I think that's an observation that started almost over a year ago and is largely consistent where there seems to be a much more interest and expressed interest in trading the micro e-mini NASDAQ, I think because of the return profile and some of the stock performance that you're seeing that's concentrated towards the top of the NASDAQ index. Yeah, that's a really good point. When you think about e-minis, you know, when Guy and I started out in the business and he, you know, he had to run down to the exchange and put his order in, you know, I had the ability to have a phone on my shoulder and talk to a broker on the floor. These things, like they trade very liquidly and they do it in an electronic fashion and they do it in sizes that, you know, you don't have to be an institution to participate. Let's talk a little bit though about the actual CME futures as it relates to Bitcoin and ETH. I think we have some data there because this is one that I think is really interesting also because you know a lot of people think of crypto and they think of buying the spot or doing it on some app where they actually don't really own the crypto but this is a way to trade it in a very liquid manner and use stops right the way you would choose futures on other indices talk to us a little bit about the growth in cme group cryptocurrency futures here and you're absolutely right when you think about the mechanics of the product 
what I think is the simplicity of trading crypto at CME is the future works the same way in your account as any other futures contract. So if you're trading micro Bitcoin or the 50X Ether larger size contract, ETH, it looks and feels just like an e-mini NASDAQ or an e-mini S&P. And it's financially settled, so it's easy. You're not touching the cryptocurrency. You don't have to worry about custody or wallets or any of those other associated risks or operational burdens when trading spot crypto in some of the other platforms out there. And I think when we look at the ease of access that CME provides with all the benefits of a listed and regulated future, including the capital efficiencies, the margin offsets, these are 1256 contracts right? for tax purposes. They work just like the other index products. It really is an easy on-ramp for customers, and that's what explains this kind of lower left to upper right growth that we're seeing in crypto. I think also when you look at the yellow boxes on this chart with the micro ether contract that was introduced in December, that's just further testament that not only are people trading cryptocurrency at CME, but they're adopting it much faster. They're already trading Bitcoin. They might be trading micro Bitcoin. So when we introduce Ether, it's a much quicker uptake for market participants, which is why we've seen early this week over a million contracts of micro Ether have traded. And we just launched that contract in December. So I think that's the adoption and the interest in Ether specifically. So this is a growth versus growth story when we're looking at our Bitcoin and our Ether products yeah. at CME. And again, really excited for the options that are coming on online later this month. Well, that's a great metric to track, you know, the ETH futures versus the Bitcoin futures, especially as a lot of our viewers know or listeners that the you know, Ethereum network is going to be moving from a proof of work to a proof of stake mid-year. And let's see how that happens. I know a lot of people are talking about a flippening where the market cap of ETH will overtake that of Bitcoin. Let's quickly look at the charts here. I know, Guy, you have some thoughts here. We had that move in Bitcoin and went from 35,000 basically to 45,000 in a day. Talk about a V reversal in markets. It's banging up against that 200 day moving average. That's a two-year chart. I think both you and I thought we'd get into that support zone guy back towards 30,000. But what happened, man? It seemed to be, it turned into, and our friend Brian Kelly, who does Fast Money with us, who runs a digital asset firm called BKCM, he's been on the show with us. He thinks it's really becoming a risk product guy. So given the sanctions and everything that happened, it really seemed like that was a real logical move. If people found their money being trapped in different locales, one way to move it around would be this decentralized crypto asset from 35,000 to this current level is all function of the people believe that the Federal Reserve is going to reverse course somehow they're going to be more accommodative they're going to go back to that posture that they've had I don't think that's going to happen don't underestimate for a minute the fact that 10-year yields have gone from 2% as we mentioned down to 1.72 and that's correlated with Bitcoin going higher so to me when people look at yields they say you know what maybe the Fed is going to be reckless once again and that's why we invented or created Bitcoin in the first place. And I think that's what we're seeing here. Yeah. And so I think those two forces combine capital controls. I mean, obviously, one of the bull cases for Bitcoin is that censorship resistance. We've talked to a lot of people who feel very strongly about that in geopolitical times where there's dust ups and money is involved and there's lots of it, trillions of dollars and all different types of risk assets that could be sanctioned. This is also kind of interesting. So not just the Federal Reserve or central banks globally and what they might do. Hey, listen, Tim McCourt, thank you very, very much for joining us and giving us this sense of some of the breadth of products and the volumes that are trading in e-minis across all different sorts of markets, equity link, and then also in the crypto space. We hope you will come back. Yeah, of course. It's great to be here. And thanks again for having me. All right, Guy Adami, take us out, buddy. Well, you can hear in the background, the reason I've been on mute is because I got some work going on here at the house. But that's today's market call. Thanks again, Tim, <laughs> for joining us. You will be back. Global head of 
equity and FX products. And thanks to our sponsors, CME Group and Open Exchange. Hopefully you enjoyed the show. Tune in tomorrow, 1 p.m. Eastern time. Carter Braxton Worth will be here with us on Market Call. See you guys later. See you later. Thanks. 